Hello. John. Well, hi there, Dan. Are you back in the, in the uh, continent? I am. I'm in America now. Oh. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. How are you? I'm also in America, so I think we're in... It's a good way to start. Good, good, good. Here we are, two Americans, just uh, <laughs> just talking talking in America and talking about America, doing the thing we do. Yeah, there it is. Yep, USA. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, how was your trip back? When did you get back? Oh, let's see. <clears throat> I did the thing. Uh, I promised. I I promised I would stop flying red eye flights because they're just not whatever you save whatever you think that's a young a man's eye. game john it it's is. a young man's game oh it is and you know it's not just not forget it you know <laughs> but um but what happened was uh alaska airlines canceled my afternoon flight oh and funneled everybody into this overnighter and so you know i don't i used to sleep on planes i guess i mean it's yeah. never the best i'm 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 too big for airplanes but you know now i've got this uh little child sleeping on my lap and she went to sleep immediately and slept through the whole flight when we landed she was like are we there wow you know shaking off sleep but she'd been you know in my lap the whole time so not exactly sleep inducing and it was an alaska flight so no in in plane entertainment system. And I'm not the kind of tech person that brings a device that has any media on it. Okay. Right. And airplanes don't supply magazines anymore. No, they give you nothing. Right. So I spent most of the flight just sort of staring at the back of the seat in front of me, thinking deep thoughts. How long of a flight is it? It's a five hour flight from Hawaii. You know, Hawaii is, um, the most isolated land or the most isolated, I don't know, place on earth. It's far, farther away from anywhere else. I mean, I don't know if that's true. Mm -hmm. It seems like Pitcairn Island might be further away, but it's very, it's five hours. I mean, it's the same distance as it would be to fly to New York, uh, but out into the middle of the ocean surrounded by nothing but sharks. So you definitely are just on the flight for the duration. There's no... You know, if you got engine trouble, you just have to keep limping along, which is fine. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. You, you know, the, the problem with inviting, I, I've always dreamt, I think, of, of going to Hawaii and inviting friends to, to join me there. You know, like one summer we went back east and we visited some friends in Maine for a week or 10 days. And then we drove down to Cape Cod and visited some other friends in Cape Cod for a week or 10 days. And it was like, Oh, since we're back East, let's go visit all of our friends in their various summer locales. And I've always wanted to reciprocate by saying like, we're in Hawaii. Everyone come, we'll get a big house and everyone yeah. can come stay. But to come to Hawaii from anywhere, mm. you know, Seattle is five hours away and that's as close a flight as you can find, but to come from New York, it's 10 hours. And from and 10 hours from New York, you could be in Argentina. You know, you could be in, I don't know, South Africa. So there's maybe not South Africa, but there's a world of places. I mean, five hours from New York, you're in Paris, France. So why would you try Why would you fly all the way across America and then 
all the way across America again, just to be in what is arguably the nicest place, but still it's a long haul. Yeah, it is. But it's our long haul. Uh, but it's, you know, it's good to be back. It's nice to be in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're good. I'm glad to have you back. I can Thank tell you. you that your, your connection, your audio quality is a little better. I know. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm that much closer. So the electricity only has <laughs> to go strong, half right, the distance. The wire isn't as long. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. A series of tubes. Right. That's right. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was, um, what did you learn on this trip to Hawaii this time? Hmm. What was your takeaway? Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with, uh, now days, a kind of a different way of phrasing, I think, something that I've been wrestling with for a long time, which is that I, I feel now that there's no question that I'm doing good, right? Like I'm, I'm doing well relative to, I'm both doing good and doing well. Okay. Uh, relative to like whatever your external metric would be, like how, <laughs> how do you stack up? Uh-huh. You know, how's it all looking? Right. Um, you know, I'm a creative person who makes a living by his wits. I'm in middle age yeah. and I have a, a healthy child and a, and a solid family. And I live in, um, a nice place and I don't suffer from maladies, uh, knock on wood. Mm-hmm. And, um, everyone, uh, everyone in my close circle and my extended circle all seem healthy and happy and, um, and there's no, there's no way to look at my circumstances and, and I guess put another way, like my accomplishments mm-hmm. and to say anything other than like, well done. Um, so, you know, I'm doing well, but it's still possible to do well and yet not feel well. You know, it's still possible to do good and not feel good. Mm-hmm. And, um, and trying to, and, and I, and I think curiously, and this is probably not a surprise, doing well does not make you feel well necessarily. Tell me what right? you mean. That, what do you mean by that? Um, I, I, I think I experienced this the first time, um, in the nineties when after most of my twenties, my late teens and twenties, I was inarguably sort of unwell. I was, I was on drugs for a long period of that. And then after I got off of them, I was very poor and, you know, struggling and creatively I wasn't, um, I didn't, I didn't put the rubber to the road. I wasn't, I wasn't making stuff that, um, that, well, I wasn't making stuff or, I mean, I I wasn't putting stuff out into the world. I was making stuff, but it was, I was just filling up spiral bound notebooks. But at a certain point in my late twenties, things started to click into place and I had stability in my life. I had a job, I had a girlfriend, I had an apartment, and then I had a band. And when those things lined up, I was 
in a way, I, by the age of 28, I had all the pieces that at the age of 22, I hadn't been able to put any of those things together. I didn't, couldn't manage to have an apartment or a girlfriend or job, certainly not banned. And so those were my dreams. Mm -hmm. But by 28, I had them. And, and again, looking at it from the outside, I had a pretty cool apartment and a super cool girlfriend and like pretty cool job and a cool band. Like my band at, at that point started to attract attention. And so it wasn't just that I had, a, I had achieved the, um, you know, the, the minimum standard of those things, which I think a lot of people would say like, well, an apartment and a job, it's not like much of an accomplishment. You can have, <laughs> that's just like a regular, uh -huh. but for me, it felt like, yeah, you know, like, uh, don't be, don't put your, it's an accomplishment. It's an accomplishment. I mean, you know, the job was one that suited me and the apartment suited me and, and, um, the girlfriend, you know, suited me. And my band did. Um, but I found that I was not that, that what I thought would happen, what I had thought would happen was that getting all those things would, would fulfill me and whatever that, uh, thousand yard stare that I had, whatever that feeling of, uh, restlessness and discontent, but also just dread, uh, that those things were situational and you know, that was a, that was a big disappointment, a surprise and disappointment at the age of 28, 29, right. that having achieved, uh, you know, this kind of small constellation of, of, um, you know, flags, you know, having planted these flags on my way to the Antarctica of the Antarctic pole of, of joy, uh, that I didn't feel like I'd made any progress at all. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remember right after I got sober, I was walking down Olive Street here in Seattle and I had this kind of, I'd only been, I'd only been sober a month or a month and a half. And I kind of got this, it was a sunny day and it was really one of those things where the sun came through the clouds and I felt like, um, like in a Terry Gilliam animation or, uh, you know, something I felt like, uh, light sh shone down upon me and I went, wait a minute, there's a version of me, like there, there's an intrinsic me, um, a, a, a corporeal me, a child brought into the world. And that child could have been raised in a thousand different environments. Mm -hmm. it, I could have been raised in Mumbai. I could have been raised True across the street from the house where I was raised by those people. But there was an intrinsic me that, um, and I, because at that point I was used to thinking of myself entirely in terms of who I came from, what my environment was, how I'd been raised, who my people were. And that those things were the things that made me who I was. But and, and, you know, and I, like anyone, I'd sat around plenty of cafes debating nature versus nurture, but I'd never applied that idea to myself. Like there's an intrinsic me and who would that person have been? And, you know, I had this crazy, I kind of had a, a, a vision that felt almost like, um, 
like a dream sequence in a sci-fi movie where I could see myself uh, in a field of, you know, like an open meadow of flowers and the light was kind of golden and I was running through the flowers and it was like, is this a dream that was implanted in me by um, whatever like science organization has raised me to believe I'm human? (laughs) But, but that idea that, what what i was what i was getting at in that moment was that i was at some level guiltless like at some level i was innocent and i had never felt a moment of innocence in my life there had never been a, a time when i didn't think of myself as guilty of something some infraction and ultimately you know, some crime, some culpability in larger crimes, the crime of why, you know, why I couldn't make everyone happy, the crime of why I couldn't solve the problems of the world. But there was an innocent me that I had no contact with, no uh, relationship with. And walking down the street, you know, here I am a month and a half sober and I'm just like, what am I, what do I do next? You know? Yeah. And, and this lightning bolt helped me because for a while, at least I was able to, I was able to picture that dream, that field of flowers, whatever that, 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 um, that implanted memory of, of piano lessons, uh, and, and, and forgive myself a little bit, at least, at least temporarily, you know, I would, it would be like a, like a, like a hall pass or something, um, that I could, yeah, you know, I could briefly allow that I wasn't necessarily guilty of everything, mm-hmm. but I lost touch with it. Uh, although I can still picture the dream sequence, you Mm -hmm. know, I lost touch with the power of that feeling. Yeah. And the experience of in my twenties and early thirties, kind of getting everything I had, everything I wanted and finding that it did almost nothing to absolve me of the guilt I felt. And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean like, like little guilt. I mean, you know, complicity Mm. that I felt in uh, and feel in the, in the, the flaws of the world of original sin, whatever that is, whatever, um, however that got into me and raising a child and realizing, you know, my daughter was who she is when she was 10 months old. Mm -hmm. Her personality was all the way fully, fully formed. There it is. And who she is, is there. And so, that caused me to reflect back on that innocent child in a field of flowers and realize like, well, now wait a minute. If that were, I didn't know this before I had a kid, but if that were my daughter, she would be in that field of flowers for sure, bossing those flowers around and telling them which princess they were. Hmm. And, <clears throat> and that's not a product of how she was raised. That's no, um, it, in that sense, there's, there was never innocence there. She was who she was. Mm-hmm. And if I'd been 
um, if I'd been taken out of my life and put into a different one, raised, you know, raised by a benevolent hand, raised by Jodie Foster's imaginary <laughs> father that she discovers <laughs> when she when her spaceship falls through a time hole, right? And Matthew McConaughey goes, oh, "All right, all right, all right." <laughs> um, Did you just watch that movie recently or something? No, no. I just <clears throat> all Matthew McConaughey movies drive me absolutely insane, <laughs> and that's just one of the ones where I'm like. <clears throat> He is not a believable scientist and interstellar. They doubled down on him being a believable scientist and he's just not one. He just stopped making him a scientist or, or a, or a priest or whatever the hell he was in that movie. He's a surfer bro and maybe, maybe a stoned cop, but <laughs> he's not, don't make him an intellectual. It just doesn't. Uh work for me. Not believe you don't believe him in that, in the, in that role. Uh, I thought in I interstellar, he kind of seemed like he was a scientist, which I did find a little, you know, he was, but he was supposed to be like a maverick scientist. He wasn't yeah, like maverick. a desk, a desk scientist. He no, was like a field, one. a field scientist. Yeah, field. He was like Richard Feynman, except without any sense of humor. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, I just, no, I, that's you know, true. <laughs> he just drives me nuts and, and it's not yeah. that he drives me nuts. I would watch him play a stoned surfer cop every day of the week. Yeah. I just, it's just that he gets cast in things that he doesn't belong. And I know people love the movie interstellar and I'm not going to argue that Matthew McConaughey in a time hole pushing books off of a bookshelf is not some incredible metaphor for what life is, but I'm, I will actually, I will argue that that is stupid and it's a stupid movie. The point is that Maybe that feeling of culpability, maybe that original sin was in me from the, from the dawn and that I'm meant to perform that role in the world. And it didn't matter who raised me and it didn't matter what culture I came up in. If I had been raised in Mumbai, I would be that person because the world makes babies that it needs. Mm -hmm. And, um, the world makes a lot of babies that it that it doesn't need because it's trying to, you know, it's trying to make the perfect baby or it's trying to make babies to fill baby shaped holes. And whatever the day it was that I came down the assembly line, I was slotted to be this baby. Right. But I've suffered from that my whole life, that feeling of, um, never having found my baby shaped hole and feeling culpability for things that I didn't even understand. I didn't certainly didn't understand the borders of the things that I, that I was complicit in and didn't understand even the, even the matter. Um, and trying to, trying to na navigate that and, and, and find, um, something I can do and find something I can do outside of myself. That's not just, I'm not just trying to alleviate um, my own suffering, right? I'm trying to find meaningful work that fulfills my programming. Right. But I was having a conversation with my sister the other day because there's a part of me, um, and I've talked to you about the sort of parliament of voices in my head and the, and the fact that I'm, I'm really able to give them at least some of them, the louder ones, I'm able to really give them uh, characterization. You know, I'm, I, I am, I'm able to put mustaches on some of them 
and to say like, look, I know you, you appear all the time and I recognize your voice. And, and although I'm not, I have not spent enough time, um, with my Vipassana app Uh to, uh, to be able to silence you or ignore you or even hear you and be unaffected. Um, I at least know that you are, that you are you and not necessarily me. Um, but in talking to my sister, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to explain that there are, there are times in my life, usually around what, what I think a lot of people would consider pretty easy decision making. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people don't have trouble making certain kinds of decisions. They have trouble making other kinds, but like matter of fact decisions about, you know, choose between the green and the blue. Okay. I want the green. Uh, it doesn't matter or it, or it does matter. And I prefer the green and the decision is made and they preferred the one, or if they didn't prefer the one, they made a decision and it was fine. And the paralysis that I often feel in those moments, I was trying to locate because that paralysis is real and it affects the quality of my life in a big way. Trying to, trying to identify what that was and why that, that, um, that voice, although a very passive and and ultimately helpless voice, um, why that voice should in those moments become the deciding voice, even though there are all these brigadiers marching around in my head Mm -hmm. and there's like a Hindenburg in there, uh, you know, like smacking his writing crop down on the conference table, but somehow this helpless child is able to steer the ship of state in these moments where, and, and steer that ship of state right up on the shoals. Why is that? And all of a sudden, you know, I gave shape to this helplessness Mm. that's in me. And I, and I could see, I could see it as a, as a person and not a child. But, uh, but a grown up, and I pictured this, this person and, you know, strangely like very clean cut, very sort of preppy 27 year old. Mm -hmm. And I pictured this person like up against a a prison wall, kind of like in the, on the cover of, uh, band on the run, except all by himself caught in the spotlight of a, of a prison tower standing there against the wall, just unsure which direction to run. Absolutely. Like deer in the headlights. And that was that care. That character is me in those moments, like frozen in the spotlight and, and just waiting for the bullet. And my sister was, you know, she's talking, my sister is kind of a guru. And over the years I've, I've really resisted her, uh, her kind of woo guru take on things, Mm -hmm. but she was kind of just talking to me 
while I was picturing this, and I was, I wasn't picturing it out loud, you know, I was having a separate experience, but she was in my ear and she was saying, every time you have one of these experiences, although the situation is different and it's a completely different story and you're telling yourself that, that the conditions in this situation are, um, unmanageable and this is why you can't come to a conclusion. She said, every time it's actually the same exact situation. And you're just recapitulating it across every aspect of your life. You get, you become helpless in relationships. You become helpless in business. You become helpless in matters of the spirit. And somehow something puts you against that wall in that spotlight waiting for that bullet. And whatever that is, you need to, I mean, that's the thing that you need to discover. It's not solving any one of the small problems that put you there. It's the thing. It's what, right. why do you keep going there? Right. And as she's talking to me and she's like, whoever that helpless person is, cause I kind of tried to explain whoever that helpless person is, you need to forgive that person. And as she said it, I became enraged at the idea that I would have any compassion for this helpless this weak willed, helpless bastard who has put me in these situations over the course of my life. I, I, my face contorted. I was actively furious, mm. not just at my sister suggesting that I needed to forgive this person, but actually at the person, mm. this, this person that I'm conjuring that lives inside my head alongside right. all these other, you know, the, the, all these other time bandits that live up there. Right. This one in particular, I had found the one that I hated the most, the, the helpless one. Right. And I, I, I just, I could not and cannot right now find anything sympathetic about the person to allow me to have, you know, to begin any kind of process of understanding or forgiving that helplessness. Because honestly, all of the worst moments in my life had him at the helm. All the moments where decisiveness would have would have protected me and would have set me on a different course and made um, made me feel that life would have been a lot easier, you know. Right. Dating back to the decisiveness of like, kiss her, you fool, mm -hmm. and and then helpless guy against the wall, like, what? No, waiting for the bullet, and then she's. She gets up off the couch and goes, well, and walks away. And I'm like, damn it. All the way up to, um, well, at every, every aspect of my life, frankly, he at some point makes an appearance and often under cover of a small decision, but ultimately one that failing to act, everything else stacks up behind and often as not, the, the project goes off the rails. So 
coming back from Hawaii to that waiting telenova, which is all happening inside my head. It's the worst <laughs> telenova because there aren't any women. It's just like a dozen like guys with fake noses standing around a conference table. It's mm-hmm. a, the worst television show you ever saw. But um, <laughs> I think that that uh, uh, arriving in, at, at this point in the story, you know, it's, it's a product of going to Hawaii and recognizing that even if I don't get that much time there to reflect, which I didn't this time, I spent a lot of time playing charades at my daughter's instruction and not very much time walking along the beach and staring out at the ocean and, and, um, and asking the whales the big questions. But I do feel like it's a product of having been to Hawaii and my expectation or my, not not expectation, the work that I try to do there that is kind of like a global reset every winter. I don't make resolutions on New Year's Eve, but I do hope at some point in February to you know, walk on one of those sandy beaches and try to un- unravel the next little rat's nest of yarn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yesterday, mm-hmm. the cable guy came okay. to install internet at my new house. One, as you know, one of the most important utilities. Yeah. Not maybe second most. Yeah. I mean, once you get the water running. Yeah. Electricity, water, internet in that order. Get that internet going. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm not having internet. You're not, you're not living. You're not really able. Yeah. That's right. You're not living. And so this was a, this was a, a watershed moment. You know, this was a big milestone internet now at the house and with internet, then, uh, things can truly start to transfer, right? Like I could be doing this show from my house today. And the only reason I'm not is that I only got internet yesterday and I haven't moved any of the wires, but I'm there, I'm waiting for the internet guy and he shows up and he's this 27-year-old from Belarus who's emigrated to the United States and lives here now and really wanted to be a landscape architect, but um, people mostly just wanted him to move rocks around their yard. There's not, you know, to be a landscape architect is to be a big dreamer, but to practice landscape architecture mm-hmm. is, I think, often you find that you're just a landscaper which is right. not what anybody, no, not what any landscape architect wants. And so he ended up getting a job in IT and then he got laid off because of COVID. And now he's a contractor for Comcast driving around in his own Volvo with a sticker on the door, trying to hustle and install internet in 10 houses a day so that he can pay for health insurance for mm-hmm. his wife and himself. 
So he shows up and he's like, here I am to install the internet. And I say, great, here's what I want. I want it to go down the side of the house here, go into a hole that you're going to drill right here, down into the basement. There's where I want the router to go. And then I want to run another line of coax up through the rafter and over here. And the ceilings are down, so it shouldn't be a problem. And then we're going to go through this wall because the bomb shelter doesn't, it's, you know, got three foot thick concrete walls and there's no way internet can penetrate. So we need to have a hard wire going to that room. And he's listening to me and he's nodding. And I get to the end and I've, you know, I've sketched out this internet plan that I, or this wiring schematic that I'd put a lot of thought into. Mm -hmm. And he said in his very charming Belarusian accent, uh, he said, I can't do any of that. I'm just here to put the internet into the first wall that I find, <laughs> which is this wall I'm standing in front of. Uh -huh. And on the other side of this wall, I will put a router. But, and he's pointing at the wall where the internet used to go in. He can see the hole. And he's like, it's going to go in that hole. And on the other side, there's going to be a router. And then I'm going to leave because I have 11 more appointments today. And I was like, well, no, 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 no. You have to, you have to have a much larger drill than that one that you have. And we're going to go down into the basement. We're going to put the router over here and then we're going to run a line. And he's like, no, I can't do any of that. I mean, honestly, I can't. If you want that all done, you ha have to hire an electrician and the electrician will come and run coax up on, under your bathroom floor if that's what you want. But I'm just here to run cable in the wall to right for right here where we're standing and it's going to be right on the other side. And I said, that's my daughter's bedroom. I don't want a freaking router in there. And he's like, well, that is all I can do. And we stood there and that helplessness, that, that person was suddenly up against the wall again. Mm -hmm. this isn't how I want it. I had a plan. It was an elegant plan. <laughs> I am basing the whole idea, mm -hmm. the whole idea moving forward of how I'm going to use internet in this house is predicated on the idea that this goes there and that goes there and that goes there. Right. And you're telling me that not only do they not go there and there and there, but they do go here, a place that I don't, I decidedly do not want. And my guy's up against the wall. And the instinct of that guy up against the wall is to do a thing that I've done a thousand times, which is to say to the guy, okay, well, you're not the guy for this, and today is not the day. So thank you for coming, and have a nice day, and I will call Comcast again one day when you guys figure out how to give people what they want. And what usually happens in that situation is that the installer shrugs and goes, hmm, all right, well, you know, whatever, like give us a call and, you know, sort of wasted my time. But anyway, gets in his car and drives away. And then I nurse a resentment against Comcast for between one and 50 years. But what the real result is, is that I would not have internet in my house and I would not have internet in my house maybe for weeks or months because I would have eliminated the possibility that this guy or Comcast or, uh, 
like that, that, that any of those directions were a solution. And I would have now on a list of to do's that I needed to hire an electrician and get them to put coax all those different places. And I would have paralyzed myself because I had a plan and the world did not acknowledge or respect my plan and did not make any allowance for accomplishing it, you know? And I had sympathy for this kid. He's a, he's hustling. He's a Belarusian who, you know, he doesn't have health insurance. Like he's trying to get as many of these done. And every other person in the world is so freaking simple. The guy goes zoot and puts the router in the child's bedroom and the people at the house go, that's where the router lives. Right. Let's cover it with a, with a Kleenex box or something. And I'm like, no, unacceptable, impossible even. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about this conversation with my sister and I'm visualizing this completely unsympathetic, like hateful, helpless, pathetic complainer. And Belarusian kid is looking at me over his COVID mask and I'm looking at him over my COVID mask and I go, eh, okay, just put it in the place. And he goes, great. And he's like, oh, you've got great internet now. You know, they all give you that same song and dance. Like, look at all the lights. Well, I, and I gave you the good router. Not this isn't, this is better than the other router. I, I gave you the top, the top router. It's like, sure you did. I know the top router. Wow. I've got 100 million billion kabilobytes. I can stream Marvel comics. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, and we virtually shake hands and he gets in his Volvo and he drives off. And now I've got a router in my daughter's bedroom. And it's not what I wanted, but it is there. Mm -hmm. And I can still hire an electrician and run coax all those different places. It's just that that electrician would be working with an actual, like actual internet service. That electrician would then hook that router up to where I wanted it and... And not just be like, well, I guess I'm running coax from here to there. I don't know why. And, uh, and the entire reason I was able to do that was that I just had been thinking about that. I had just given a face to that helpless person the day before. And I could picture them very clearly. And I could hear my sister's voice saying, it's a different situation every time, but it's the same guy in the same exact place, always up against the wall with the light on him, always waiting for the bullet. It doesn't matter whether it's love or money or politics, it's, or internet, it's always the same guy against the same wall. And why, why is he there? And what do you have to say to him? And why would you, why would all the the, the petty Hindenburgs in your mind cede so much control over the moment to, to this, um, you know, this person that feels so helpless that they become like aggressive. And you know, that thing where, where someone feels like they're a victim and they become an oppressor. I mean, Jesus, like 40% of the internet is that now. Mm-hmm. The, the people that feel victimized to the point that they become 
like victimizers. And there's, there's one of those in my head, right? Or maybe more than one, but this, this helpless victim who feels like he's going to exert control over, over the world, over his destiny by, by, um, by saying, je refuse in the worst possible, by saying, I prefer not to. And maybe that's, I should call him Bartleby. Although Bartleby at least had more, more agency than this one does. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what to call him. I know what you mean. The white whale. (laughs) Anyway, that's where I am today. Yeah. Well, where are you? Yeah. Where am am I? I mean, what's your take on that? Because this all seems to go, this all seems to kind kind of of fold a a Buddhisty thing. It's a, yeah, right. Right. Or is it, I mean, I don't know enough about it to know if it's Buddhisty. Uh, well, I mean, there's part of it. There is that you have an expectation for something and then, then things are not going to be the way that you wanted or thought that they would be. And that's the suffering comes from clinging to something, not being the way that you want it to be or something changing because of the whole impermanence thing. But just because you know, those things doesn't make it, um, like knowing that, oh, my suffering is being caused because I'm clinging to things being different than I thought they would be or than I wanted them to be doesn't make the suffering go away. It might take you one step closer to the path to making suffering less, you know. Um, but your attitude about it's like the right way to be, which is, well, I guess this is how it's going to be now. Like there's a router in my daughter's room. It's not where I wanted it, but here it is. At least we have internet. So I mean, like you're, but I still, I still don't understand why it it couldn't have been different. And I guess that's why I still suffer too, because you want something to be different from the way that it turns out. And what do you do? You're sort of stuck. I don't know, but I feel like the world changed a little bit. Because I feel like things used to be easier. Getting what you wanted used to be easier. Okay, so here's an example of something. A friend of mine uh, runs a company here in Austin. And uh, it, it was a company that he started um, when it was, you know, it was just him. And then he had a couple people. And over the last few years, it's grown. I think he told me there's something like 50, 60 people working there now. So he's got a really big office. And of course, because of COVID, they don't go into the office very often. And they have a rule. And the rule is only employees can go to the office. They don't let outsiders in because you know, mm. of the 60 employees, I'm sure all of them are perfect and implicitly trustable. But that bringing someone else in, you know, that that's not okay. No, those people are because all probably have other, disease. Other people who are not employees are diseased and people who are employees are healthy. And that's a fact. Everyone knows that. No that's one's true. gotten no one has ever gotten COVID from a coworker if they're true working facts. in the same company. So he was gonna he had invited me over because he wanted me to see they are have built or want, or have a space that they want to use for podcasting and they wanted some advice and thoughts and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
And I said, yeah, sure. I'd, you know, I'd love to come. And I'd never seen their new space. And I said, sure, I'll go there and look at, look at the space. You know, and we had it all set up. And then he, um, now he's a, he's all a big deal now because he has a 60, mm. 60 person company. He's a big deal. It used to be, I could just text him and say, let's grab lunch. And he'd say, I'll meet you here. And we'd go. Now there's like a person in between me and him so that we can, we, <laughs> we can mutually agree to have lunch. We can pick a location and a time, but it's not real until it goes through this third person, this third person who, oh, then, yes. who then coordinates it and, and somehow <laughs> makes it real. And so I guess he had said to her like, Hey, you know, I'm going to have Dan come by and he's going to check out our little studio. And everything was fine until like a couple of days beforehand. And I got this very long email from this woman explaining why this just can't happen. Oh dear. And apparently it was all because of these COVID rules and everything else. And oh, you I, couldn't come because you're full of disease. I could be diseased. Yeah. I could have COVID. Yes. And, um, and so I, I I'm not going to mess with, it. I'm sorry. I have, I have no respect for their rules. That's irrelevant to me. And I have no respect for their chain of command or their authority or anything to do with that. And I certainly am not going to talk to their go-between person who, for whom may, she may be the loveliest woman in the whole world and the kindest, sweetest, most helpful. I don't care. No, it's, that doesn't matter to me. I'm talking to my friend. So I texted him. I said, Hey, I just got this email from this lady who says, Oh, we can't, we can't come in. I'm like, that's fine. Um, do you want to just meet at the burger place instead? And he's like, yeah, you know, we, we could do that. Oh. I said, all right. So, um, we're sitting there at lunch eating a burger and I said, so you're not allowed, even though you're the founder and creator and CEO of this company and everybody there works for you, including this woman who's laying down the law saying that you are not allowed to have your friend come by and see it. And I said, no, I respect that. I said, but what about on a weekend or an off hour? He's like, no, 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 I, I still, I still can't, still can't do it. Mm -hmm. I said, so wait on a weekend when your office is empty if we're wearing masks, no one's there. Mm -hmm. I can't walk into a room and look at the room and then leave. No, like, you're no, going to give it COVID. He's like, I can't, you can't, you, you can't do it. You're going to give that room COVID, Dan, and then everybody's going to get it. And I said to him, I said, um, I said, this is your company though, right? He right. said, yeah, yeah, of course. I said, you run this, right? Yeah. I said, how come sure. one of your employees is telling you what you can and can't do? I said, do you, do you think an employee at Apple would tell Steve Jobs he couldn't go somewhere and do something he wanted to do? If Steve Jobs wanted to drive his Mercedes through the front glass of the office building and park it there, you think anybody at Apple would say, Steve, you can't do that? They'd say, well, I, I guess there was somebody. I, I guess, bet he hired somebody. No, I don't think so. I think they'd take one look at him and say, well, that's Steve. He can do whatever he wants. I mean, maybe they would say, are you okay? And he'd be like, yeah, this is where I felt like parking today. And people might clean up the glass, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but they're not going to tell him he can't do something. Mm -hmm. And so my friend said, well, it's, it's about, you know, I signed, I signed an agreement. I signed the same agreement that all the employees signed. And oh, so I, first mistake. I have to uphold it because I have to be, you know, I have to be one of them. And yeah. this kind of stuck with me because obviously he knows, I think more about business, building a business and running a company than I, than I do because he's very, very successful. 
in much less time than I've been doing business. So I have a lot to learn from him. But that said, <clears throat> nobody's going to tell me I can't do what I want to do in the company that's mine. Like mm-hmm. literally n- nobody. Now I'm not talking about like interpersonal stuff. Of course, you've got to treat people with respect and all. I'm not talking about HR stuff. I'm no. saying if, if on Sunday afternoon, I feel like having somebody come by and we're the only ones there, I feel like that's, that's my prerogative to do it. But obviously I'm wrong. Obviously I'm wrong. And I, I already mm. know there's people in our audience who are like, Dan, uh, 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 um, but it just, it was so weird to me that, that like, I always felt like, yeah, you could, you could do, you could do what you want, but I mm-hmm. guess not. And this is what I mean by the world it being changed five years ago. This would have been even, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have been an issue. Mm-hmm. I don't think. And I think 20 years ago, 15 years ago, if that cable guy had gotten there and you'd said, I want it over here, they would have been like, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, well, We've got these, this is, this is how it's going to be. And like, and now it, it, you remember the old saying, the customer's always right. Mm. That's a history that's gone. It's gone. I think in, you know, I think that, that some, some of it, like the, the writing is just right there, right? The, this is not an employee of Comcast. They did not come out in a Comcast truck. Right. They're not getting paid an hourly wage or, or a salary. So that they only install as many cable uh, installations as they want or as they can get to in their day. Right. You know, a Comcast employee in a truck with a uniform on, if I had said, I want you to go in here and down through and around and over and up and down, they would have said, doesn't matter to me. I could be here all afternoon. Comcast has figured out, you know what? We hire a bunch of Belarusians and we make their salary contingent on the number of time the number of people they install and uh that's that's a that's gonna make the bottom line fatter for our mm-hmm. shareholders mm-hmm. and so this kid he doesn't have the tools to do it but also he has n- absolutely no motivation to do it right like if he spends two hours with me all that is is four people he didn't <laughs> get to right there's no like my satisfaction uh, is not on his hierarchy of needs at all, right? Like that's not the point. And nothing I can do would make it the point other than to give him a, I don't know what, $500 tip. Um, and having, and you know, this is, it, it gets us into this like, well, now we're living in a, in a service economy. Right. And there's a voice in this equation that's saying, look, you have to, you have to respect this kid's time. You have to understand that, uh, that asking more of him is an imposition Mm -hmm. on him. And he's, you know, he's a working class person. And so you're in a, you're in a posture now where you're interacting with a giant corporation mm-hmm. that is screwing you out of custom service. Right. But as a consumer, you're interfacing with a person that is struggling to make ends meet. And so you can't throw a fit. You can't be a Karen. You can't complain to his manager. And 
so it, you know, so your human sympathy and the corporation somehow manages to do this, your human sympathy directed toward this fellow human, like dictates that you not ask for more Mm -hmm. and that you not have, you not demand of this giant corporation, any better service. Right. And it's the same with everything. Now, if you ride in an Uber and this, uh, and your Uber driver is like, I'm trying to feed 11 people who live in a big house with me. And you're like, well, your car smells like olives. (laughs) Uh, and they're like, well, I also have a side gig where I drive olives around places. At who are, you know, you can't say like, I would rather have a car that doesn't smell like olives. Mm-hmm. You're like, okay, well I'm, I'm riding with you then. And meanwhile, Uber is just like, ching, 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 right. like they're screwing them. They're screwing you. That's the new economy. That's the economy where we're all leasing Microsoft word instead of owning it. Mm-hmm. And that's the injustice because you're absolutely right, Dan. The last time I had cable installed, which was a long time ago the cable installer came out and spent all afternoon with me. Right. I was like, well, this got to go here. And what if we did this? And you know, how about if we don't, you sure you don't want it over here and all this, you know, um, a pas de deux with the cable instructor or installer. And now it's like, it's like, look, uh, my, my meal was cold, but I can't take it out on the waiter. Uh, it's a, but you know, but I can't take it out on the manager either. Like there's no, all you can do is just suffer in silence. And I guess the, the, uh, the people who go through life with grace just factor all that in. Mm -hmm. They never, and I think some younger people never lived in a world where there was service, an expectation that the customer was always right or anything approximating that. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a, in a culture, a commercial culture now, which is like the customer is who the customer isn't the, isn't even the customer. Like the customer is stockholder, shareholder, and the, the person buying the service is the, what the, the raw meat that goes in the hot dog. So, but I think there's also a way to do it, which is, which is, um, just to assume that everything costs twice as much as it does because you have the person come and then you have to have a different person come to make it right. And that's when you factor in the fact that like everything is, you know, clothes at Target are so cheap. Well, yeah. Um, but it's part of a it's part of a world where if you want it done right, or if you want the thing to be good, you have to pay twice as much. And that's just hard to get your head around because I think you and I both, when things started to get cheap, when it was like, what, you can fly all the way to there for $199. Whoa. You know, it all felt like, wow, we've really cracked it. We've really, we've really cracked the the system. We figured it out. Everything should be available to everybody and it's all, it all should be free. And then you realize, oh no, the costs are that everything's bad. And to return to a genteel life, you are really just returning to a time when everything was expensive and hard to get, which you remember. I remember. Of course. Remember when it was expensive to get things and hard to, hard to get them. 
And I guess that's just where you, where we have to put our minds like, Oh, Oh, right. Actually, this is expensive and hard to do. The kid's going to come out and throw this together, but then I have to pay a guy with a mustache to come and like, (laughs) you know, and he's going to get $75 an hour to do what this kid, you know, to do what Comcast used to do for free because it was part of their service. It's hard not to go through life full of hate, (laughs) you know, not for the kid. Uh Right. Like every time you see a Comcast truck drive by, you're like, fuck you. I mean, I still feel that way about Verizon. I feel that way about Verizon from 2003. And that's one of these things where, you know, that helpless, that helpless character in my head had an experience with, with Verizon where the customer service person basically said, yeah, we're no longer in the business of catering to you. You need this. We set the terms of it. If you don't like it, we don't care. Mm -hmm. There are millions and millions of people stacking up behind you to, um, to pay whatever we ask for our service, whether it's good or bad. So, you know, get in line. And I was like, I will never use your company again. And they were like, don't care. Right. They don't care. They don't care. And it was the first time Verizon was the first time I had ever had that, that customer service experience where I was like, they don't care about you and they don't care if every single one of your, the people that you know and who knows you hears about it and also leaves. They don't care. Right. It has no zero effect on them. United airlines too. I went through with where I was like, do you, do you realize that I have 15,000 Twitter followers and United airlines was like, we don't care. And I was like, you're a terrible airline. And they said, we don't care. I was like, you, you're, you're a really, really bad thing. United airlines, like you're a bad thing. And they're like, yeah, we don't care because there are, we have a lot of corporate accounts and every single, um, you know, every single salesperson for Santa clean flies United airlines and so the Santa clean account represents so many more airplane dollars than you and all your friends and all their friends right. times a thousand. Right. And, you know, I limped away from that encounter. Like, well, I'll never use United airlines again. And United airlines doesn't care. It's like, it's like, um, when you used to get mad at somebody on Twitter and they would just mute you and you're right. like, I'm mad at you, but you don't care. You can't, I, there's no way for me to even get to you to tell you how mad I am. Right. Being mad doesn't pay. 